everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up BFW show where we hit on all the latest and greatest news of the week. As always with Bayern Munich, there's a lot to talk about. Even during this holiday break, this winter pause, Bayern Munich has found itself embroiled in controversies, (laughs) transfer rumors, and just a whole lot of things that we probably didn't expect Bayern Munich to be involved in back when they originally broke for the World Cup. So it is it is kind of crazy to think about where things were then, how everybody felt about the squad then, and where things are now. Because it's just so much has happened. And now the perspective of the squad has changed so much based on some of the injuries that it's really tough to get a gauge on where things are going what the club wants to do in January, remember, they didn't want to be active in this transfer window, but now they might actually have to be. So as we all know, if you're reading BFW, you're seeing that there are a lot of stories right now, a lot of transfer rumors, a lot of controversies, a lot of personnel issues. So uh, let's just get right to it. We'll follow our normal format of the five things that we learned this week. And the first thing we learned this week is that Alexander Nubel has taken a hard line stance with Bayern Munich. He is not according to his latest quotes, going to make the move back to Bayern. And, and I have to be honest, I'm a little bit shocked at how this has played out because while it always seemed a little bit doubtful that Nubel wanted to come back and that he would come back just because of the situation with Neuer and how awkward it was uh, initially for Nubel, he has really come across as bitter and angry throughout this. Now, I don't even fault him for how he feels or why he doesn't want to come back, or even if this decision sticks, him not coming back, even when the club needs him. In his mind, something went wrong. And whether it was he was sold something during his initial contract negotiations that didn't come true or didn't happen, whether it's uh, something that happened with Neuer, whether it's something that happened with Tony Tapalovich. Uh, if it's some kind of relationship breakdown among the three of them, we don't know. But what we do know is that in a time of need, Bayern Munich cannot count on their loanee, Alexander Nubel, to come back. And if you just look at this set of quotes, it's kind of, it's really, really interesting. So Nubel told Tobias Altschaffel from SportBuild, it doesn't make much sense for me to come back. I don't know how serious Manuel Manuel's injury is, but I think he will be fit again by summer at the latest in preparation for next season. I'll keep my fingers crossed for him. And that is to me just a dagger, absolute dagger to Bayern Munich because Nubel is the player that the club was counting on to eventually take Neuer's place. He was the next generation Neuer and physically and style of play. He is one of the only young keepers available right now or around right now that really is could somewhat fit into that Neuer mold so for him to really feel this way it, it's a little bit shocking but at this it's got to be disconcerting for the club it really does and Nubel went on to say a couple of more things I'm very happy here talking about AS Monaco I still have a lot of games ahead with Monaco I realize here how important playing games is I don't want to do without that anymore and of course this quote refers back to Nubel's first season with Bayern Munich, where he was promised a certain percentage of the games and Manuel Neuer squashed that. And I think that's one of the one of the primary reasons that Nubel is, is so bitter about this right now is I think he felt like 
or at least he was sold, that there was a pathway and a progression for him to eventually take over. And I would not be shocked if during the negotiations, a plan was presented to him, perhaps in a PowerPoint, uh, showing that he would get X amount of games year one, step up to year two, X amount of games, maybe potentially take a loan and then ride it out until Neuer was was ready to retire. But things really went off the rails because Neuer, after his uh, dealing with injuries for a couple of seasons, really got his health and fitness in order. He looked great. He has been really, really good. I, I don't think that there has been really much of a fault with his play in recent years. So I don't know if the club jumped the gun with Newble. They felt like they had to wrap up perhaps the player that would be Germany's next great young goalkeeper, whether they just felt like Neuer at that point might have been falling off and they wanted to be prepared for it. I don't know. But whatever happened, Newble is is not happy and he is uh, really not feeling it. So, you know, Newble did go on to say, you know, ultimately AS Monaco has the last say. I'm under contract here. They would first have to give the signal that they want to do it. I think that will be very difficult. So Newble, like most of us, think that Monaco is is going to be very reluctant to give him up. At this stage, I mean, they are fighting for their European lives. They want to be in a position where they qualify for some type of European play next year. And to do that, they probably do need Alexander Newble. Newble did go on and say, I'm feeling good here. The people in charge know that. I trust them. They trust me. That's why I'm happy to be here. So if you want to look at quotes and how that's digging into uh, really passive aggressively, maybe taking a shot at Bayern Munich, I think that that's one. It appears that he has this perception that Bayern Munich did not trust him. And that's why the situation didn't work out where he was getting more games. So I think that his (laughs) recent statements here are basically saying, I'm staying with the club that wants me here that trusts me and that I can help maybe not on a long-term basis because his loan ultimately will end, but in a way that will be significant and that will mean something. Whereas if he goes back to Bayern Munich, even he could win the champions league this year, he would be losing his position to Manuel Neuer as soon as Neuer is healthy. So I do think that uh, Nubel, <laughs> Definitely has some bitterness. And the last two quotes that I'll leave you with is uh, Nubel did talk about uh, his relationship with Tony Tabalovich and also in his recent meeting with Brazo and Marco Nepp. So let's hit the Tabalovich one first. He says about the Bayern Munich goalkeeper coach, we had a normal relationship when I was at Bayern. Since then, there has been little contact, but my focus is here at Monaco. So it appears that Nubel is, again, a little miffed that Tapilovic has not been following up with him, maybe having a weekly call, doing something to look at his progress and talk to him about how he is maturing and evolving as a player. So there's definitely some issues between Nubel and how he how he perceives the relationship with Tapilovic should be. As far as the meeting with Brazo and Nep, Nubel had this to say: the contract is the same as before the the contact. I'm sorry, is the same as before the meeting. It's little that hasn't changed. My agent is managing everything very well. The topic is not not quite as big in France as it is in Germany. Everything Nubel is saying is a dig at Bayern Munich. And whether you want to take it that way or not, that is absolutely what he means to do with all of these quotes. Every single thing he's saying, you can read into, into something that he is unhappy about. 
And he clearly not only did not like what was going on and how he one signed his deal and how that all worked out with what he was promised and what he did not get. But now he's very adamant that the communication has quite frankly sucked and that he's unhappy about that. And he thinks that quite frankly, again, the club Bayern Munich does not care much about him. So as we can see this Nubel situation, uh, you can't fix it at this point. You can't send in the wolf from Pulp Fiction to come in and clean this mess up. Nobody's cleaning this up. It really does appear as though that Nubel wants to move on. I don't think he sees any future at Bayern Munich, and that's mostly because he is operating under the same assumption we all are, and that's that Manuel Neuer is going to come back healthy, and he's going to stay in that number one goalkeeper position until he decides that he's willing to take a step back. And and who knows when that will be. Again, this whole Neuer situation is so tenuous because no one knows what he's going to come back like. And, and, and he is, I don't think you could get anybody. He is a Superman for that position. He can do so many things and he plays it in such a different style than anyone else. He's a unicorn. You, you can't replicate what he can do. And even though Nubel is, maybe as close to anyone at being able to try and replicate that Bayern Munich has found a way over the last couple of years to alienate him and make him feel unwanted. At least that's my perception given these quotes and, and the consistent way that he's addressed Bayern Munich and talked about his situation over the last few months. I mean, Nubel seems to be very happy where he's at. He has clearly indicated he is not coming back to Bayern Munich if Manuel Neuer is the starter. So he's going to have to move on. And with that, I don't know where Bayern goes from here with Nubel. Uh, it's a very touchy and tough situation. Clearly, he is a player that could be on the German national team's radar very soon. Uh, at 26, he, he is definitely a player who, if he's not already under consideration for the Euros, he's got to be working his way there. His contract ends in 2025. So next summer, it really will be a situation where I, I think that Bayern Munich's probably going to have to look to sell him because he has made it abundantly clear that he does not see himself playing at Bayern Munich as long as Manuel Neuer's there. I mean, barring Neuer not being able to, or at least having some kind of regression in his rehab, or the club having some really you know, cold feet about what Neuer's going to be able to do when he comes back. It just looks like right now, Alexander Nubel is going to have to be sold off in the summer. And I think that's going to be very tough for Bayern Munich fans because now there's a huge gaping hole uh, at, at basically the, the person on the roster who would be the natural successor to Manuel Neuer. So the club will have to go out and find someone to fill that role uh, we know right now that they're looking at Jan Sommer from Gladbach, obviously. So that's the big one. Now that now that Nubel is out of the picture, I think that Bayern is going to have to put on the full court press for Sommer. But this week, he indicated he's still talking with Gladbach. We know that Manchester United is is very interested in him, in him as well, even though he has a, a a very affordable price attached to his name. And what we've seen is five to six million euro, even for a half season loan. That would be I say loan, but a short-term deal where he would stay with Bayern Munich for half a season, that's a steal. 
five to six million euros is an absolute steal for someone like Summer. I think at this point, knowing what we know about Nubel, Bayern has two options. They either stick with Sven Ulreich, who is a, a good goalkeeper. I don't know if he's going to be the type of goalkeeper that gets you over the hump in the Champions League. I, I don't wouldn't discount him if the defense plays well in front of him, but he's certainly not Manuel Neuer, and he's probably not Jan Sommer. So I think you have to go out. If you're Bayern Munich, you have to get Jan Sommer, and you've got to put the full court press on to get him. And that's probably about all you can do at this point because Alexander Nubel, it appears that not just for this season, but probably for the future, is looking at a career elsewhere. The second thing that we learned this week is that Bayern Munich, knowing all of these issues that they have going on contractually, is very eager to lock up Luca Hernandez, Alfonso Davies, and Jamal Musiala to long-term deals. Now, with Luca Hernandez, we kind of knew that this was going to happen. I mean, this has been speculated for weeks now. Hernandez, uh, obviously, tore his ACL at the World Cup, so he is out for the rest of this season. We're assuming he'll be able to come back and at least start next season, not with the team probably, but working his way back. I would anticipate that if the club wants to play it smart and safe with him, he would probably not be getting full regular rotations until the Rook run the next season. But you never know. I mean, the medicine over in Europe and Middle East, depending on where he's getting treated, is a lot different than in the U.S. So whatever they seem to be doing in Europe to get players back to full strength, it seems to be happening quicker with ACL injuries over there. I would say the one outlier is Florian Verts, and that might just be because he is such a coveted figure in the footballing world that Bayer Leverkusen might be taking a more conservative approach with him. But otherwise we've seen players like Nicholas Sula, I think Quentin Tolisso, they've come back so quickly from ACL injuries that it makes you wonder if it's really true that they're <laughs> at a hundred percent, but we'll see what Bayern Munich does with Hernandez, but his contract expires in 2024, which really makes this summer the one for him. Bayern Munich has to get him locked up. I think both sides want this deal to get done. And for a long time, as you know, I was one of these player people that was not convinced that Hernandez wanted to re-up with Bayern Munich. And there's still a little sliver of me that's not so sure that he wouldn't mind a move back to Spain or he wouldn't like to try his, you know, try and take his game to England and see how he would do there. So I wouldn't necessarily say this is a done deal for Bayern Munich by any means. Uh, I do think that Hernandez being away from the team with this injury could open up his eyes to some other possibilities. But the last we heard from him is he was looking, or at least from his representation or camp, that he is looking forward to having these discussions with Bayern Munich. Meanwhile, we do know that Bayern Munich is absolutely trying to get Luca Hernandez locked up because they want him as part of their center back rotation. In my mind, he was probably the best of the three, four, if you want to count Benjamin Pavar, but probably the best of that center back group. Uh, and I think that he will be missed in the second half of this season. So we'll see what happens with Hernandez, but obviously Byron wants to get that done sooner rather than later. Alfonso Davies is a different issue. His contract runs out in 2025. So, He's got a little bit more time to play with here, but I think Bayern Munich, like a, like a lot of smart clubs, would understand that Davies is, like I hate reusing the word unicorn, but he is really 
such a dynamic physical presence. Um, I really wonder if they're not looking to expedite the timeline for offering him an extension because they know, and we've seen the stories that a club like Real Madrid is going to go hard after him because you can't really replicate what he brings to the table as a left back because it's not just his speed that is exceptional. It's that quickness and that burst to get that, get through those first 10 yards and how he can distance himself from his opponents in those first 10 yards. It's amazing to watch. And and listen, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich, they're not the only two clubs that know this. I am sure that many clubs as the days tick off the calendar are going to get more and more interested in Davies. And we don't know what Davies' long-term commitment to Bayern Munich is at this point. We do know that Davies has often talked about wanting to eventually play left wing again, which, you know, I don't know that he's going to get that opportunity at Bayern Munich. And it's kind of weird because I think when most Bayern fans view him, we view him as a left back extraordinaire. Like he is one of the top handful of left backs in the world, but if you look at his younger days, I mean, he was absolutely more of a winger and that might be where his heart is. And if he can find a club that's willing to let him move up the pitch and play wing, it might tempt him. Now, I don't know if that's something that Real Madrid would look for, because honestly, if you're another club and you see him as such a dynamic talent at left back, you probably want to keep him there. It's maybe similar to what Benjamin Pavar is going through at right back. So many clubs love what he does at right back that that's really the only place where they want him to play. Meanwhile, he wants to play as a center back. So I don't know, you know, if Benjamin Pavar or Alfonso Davies are going to be able to find happiness with their next clubs if either of them move on, because I think that they are both kind of looked at as playing those outside back positions. And Real Madrid, to me, I have no doubt that they will take a strong run at Davies. And Bayern right now is reacting, in my mind, to that interest. And they may know more. They may know it's way more serious than we do at this point. But we don't know where Davies stands. We don't know if Germany was just the first step in his career or if he's looking to extend his stay and and potentially become someone that could develop into a club legend. We don't know that yet. And we haven't heard him talk about it. So where this all stands will be very interesting to watch play out. But we do know that the club wants to get it done. They want him locked up. And he's got a little while to go uh, before he really even has to react. So it'll be very intriguing to see what kind of pressure that puts him under from Bayern Munich. And if, you know, he reacts to it in a way that will, you know, lead him to think that maybe he should extend early and, and cash in on the opportunity to essentially get some guaranteed money, or if he's going to bet on himself and put himself out in the marketplace in two years. And I think if you're him and you're young and you've got an aggressive personality there's probably not much of a reason to be conservative right now. So Alfonso Davies, while Byron wants to get it done, he's going to have options. And at this point in his career, I wouldn't be shocked if he does at least take a look around and see what else is out there. As for Jamal Musiala, this is to me the most fascinating (laughs) of all, of all the contract situations because Byron Munich just locked him up through 2026 and they already want to extend him. And it's to me, it's really, I mean, it's crazy. He just signed a contract extension last season. So 
it's it's one of those situations where he has again exploded. This star has exploded all over Europe. Everyone knows what Jamal Musiala is right now, what he can be, and where he will fit into that next generation of great players. And when we talk about that next generation, you're talking about players like Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe and Pedri, uh, players like that. And Musiala is right there with them, Jude Bellingham. I mean, you have four or five players right there that are going to define essentially this young group of players who are anywhere from their late teens to their end of their early 20s. And it's a really just fantastic group. And people know that Musial will be one of those top players. And Byron obviously wants to make sure (laughs) that they hang on to him. Now, for Musiala, I think it, his situation is probably a little more stable than Davies because Musiala did make that jump already from Chelsea to Bayern when he was really not finding the pathway to playing time with the first team, really anything that he felt like navigating while in London. Uh, and, and listen, they have a lot of organizational depth at Chelsea, and it's easy to get lost over there. But it's really fascinating because Musiala, I mean, it doesn't take long to identify that he's a special player. So the fact that Chelsea let him go, Byron was able to swoop him up, and then he did change his allegiances from the England youth national team system to Germany's senior team. I think his situation will lend itself to being more stable and that he may be more inclined to accept another extension from Bayern Munich. So if I had to rank the things that were probably going to happen, I would say Musiala is the most likely to get another extension just because of his age. The fact that now he's proving he should be paid for paid more and Bayern is, is more than willing to make it happen. Of course, with his, this renegotiation for him, it's not just that they'd be adding years to his contract. They will be adding a whole hell of a lot of money into that. Uh, I would say that Hernandez is the second most likely to re-up just because he's in a spot where, you know, there will be some doubters with his health. He's obviously had a very uh, long injury history, some significant injuries as well. So I think with that, he's probably going to re-up for at least one more contract with Bayern. Still, there's a little part of me that thinks that he could be swayed to go back to Spain. Um, But I, I will say he's number two. And Davies is definitely third on my list because I think he is now at the point in his career where it's not just about playing for the club. It's about the money he can make off the field. And honestly, it's a lot easier for a player like Davies from Canada to make money in the Premier League or to go to La Liga, which has a much more popular presence in North America than, say, the Bundesliga, at least in my opinion. So, those are the that's the way I feel about those three positions. I I think Musiala, Hernandez, and then Davies. I know it sounds like a little doomsday. I'm not saying Davies is moving on. I'm just saying if you look at it from his perspective, he is the most likely to to take a look around and see what else is out there. Uh the third thing that we learned this week is that Bayern Munich still has a lot of interest in Bayer Leverkusen ace Florian Verts. And they were a little annoyed that he re-upped his deal to stay with Leverkusen through 2027. And I guess they were, because I think at least based on the stories that we read over the past year, that Bayern felt like they had a very good chance to get Verts pretty soon. 
I think had Verts not torn his ACL, we could have possibly seen Bayern Munich looking to bring him in as early as this upcoming summer transfer window. Now I think that all takes a step back. I think there are a couple of factors here. One, Verts has to prove that he's got that same explosiveness, the same ability, this just to be able to play like the player he was a year and a half ago. If he can't prove if he can't prove that, it will absolutely give Bayern Munich some doubt. So they're going to need to see something. So I think he'll have about a year and a half to play for Leverkusen before the vultures start circling. And you will have clubs like Bayern Munich and Real Madrid and FC Barcelona all taking a strong look at him versus that dynamic of a talent. But what I found interesting about this is that Bayern had the attitude that they were going to get him and get him relatively soon. And that that extension just became really a hindrance to that because it did empower Bayer Leverkusen to demand more money because they have more contractual control over Verts, just given the length of that deal. I mean, we're talking about five years from today. He'd have, you know, still have half a season left on his contract. So I don't doubt that Bayern Munich is going to make a run at Verts. I'm interested to see what they do. Like what we've seen about him is a nine figure transfer fee. And given his talent and what he proved before his injury, that's not shocking. What would be shocking if Bayern Munich actually pays it. And I think that's where there's a disconnect. I don't think that they want to approach that, especially because I don't know where he would fit in to a lineup that's already featuring so many players who you could consider as attacking midfielders. I mean, Jamal Musiala. Now, granted, we'll we'll throw Thomas Muller out of the mix because he is on the tail end of his career, obviously probably won't be around much longer, but you still have him there at least for another season or two. You have Musiala Muller, you have Paul Vonner, you have Ariane Ibrahimovic, uh, you have a ton of other talents in the academy. You have Gnabry and Sané who both at least looked good playing there at times centrally. I mean, we know that Gnabry wants to play there. We know that Sané does not mind playing there. So you you have a lot of options and that's not even counting Ryan Gravenberg, who uh, Julian Nagelsmann thinks is a 10. Uh, He also thinks Eric Maxim Chupomoting is a 10, although it's very unclear how much longer he'll be around. Either way, Verts is a player who he wouldn't be making this move to be a bench guy or a depth guy. He'd be coming over to be a starter. So you'd have to be creative with how you use those players. Of course, Musiala can play as a wing. We've seen Verts in his career play a little bit of right wing. I don't know what you would do, how you would use them, but there's going to be some roster fallout eventually at Bayern Munich. I mean, Verts is just 19. So when we look at players like Sané and Gnabry and Sadio Mane and Kingsley Coman, you would have to start to assume that maybe this summer we might start to see some fallout and some of those players start to move on. Certainly in two years, at least half of that four-person group, I think, will be gone. So I think Verts is going to be a candidate to fill backfill those positions. I just don't know how it would all work. I guess it would all depend on who's the coach at the time and what that coach wanted to do. And we can assume right now it'll be Julian Nagelsmann, but how do you how do you use all of these players that their primary position is as an attacking midfielder. I know that that people love that and that people want to uh, always use their best players as attacking midfielders. But uh, what I will tell you is that it's going to be hard to keep them all happy. 
And it'll be very hard for Bayern to integrate a player like Florian Wirtz. If you have Jamal Musiala already manning that position and, you know, assuming Bayern stays with their traditional 4-2-3-1, uh, it will be difficult to find a way to, to use Wirtz in a way that will keep him happy and that will keep Jamal Musiala happy. Who Again, Musiala, they're trying to already lock up because they want him there long-term. So the Wirtz thing is very, very interesting. I think at some point he will be a Bayern Munich player. I think a lot is going to have to happen. Uh, we did see reports uh, about a year ago that Byron had very close contact with his dad, who does represent him. So clearly there are some things in motion. There's a lot of contact that has been made over the years. I think Byron does legitimately see Verts as a superstar. Um, in a way, it's kind of exciting because, you know, while there are some some headaches, I'm sure, as to how you would use those players, imagine Musiala and Verts playing together, not just for Germany, but also at Bayern Munich and think about the potential that that has. Now we're all miserable having watched Germany flame out in the world cup, but there are potentially some good things coming down the pike. And Verts is one of the players who I think could lead that charge for both club and country. If he does eventually make the move to Bayern Munich, uh, I certainly expect him to be a key member of Germany's squad for the Euros. Uh, the fourth thing that we learned this week, and we're going back to Real Madrid transfer rumors, is that Real Madrid reportedly has some interest in Leroy Sané, which to me I found very interesting because Sané is in this this weird position where he is battling with Sadio Mane, Kingsley Coman, and Serge Gnabry, uh, at least right now, for two wing positions. We know that now, Bayern Munich also kind of views Matisse Tell as, as a winger, too. So you have five pretty good options, five very talented options. Sané, for as good as he is and as dynamic as he is, and, and he has been, in my mind, really one of the best players for Bayern Munich this season, he might be in a position where he's finding himself left out of the lineup. And I do feel like, in a lot of ways, there is a strong commitment from Bayern to Sadio Mané. And he will get the big chunk of the playing time. And he will be, I don't want to say gifted a starting role because he's hes a good player and probably deserves one. But he's going to be giving more of the benefit of the doubt for a starting role. I think at this stage, it'll be very interesting to see if Leroy Sané, if he emerges as the other starter on wing, how he reacts to being the right winger in a situation where he has clearly preferred to play left wing. He has clearly been a better player at left wing uh, for whatever reason, whether it's a comfort thing or whatever, he's just better on that side. So if he has to take a back seat to Mane and play as a right wing, how happy will he be? Will he want to stay? What if he starts to lose time to either Serge Gnabry or Kingsley Coman? Uh, what if Matisse Tell becomes such a force in the second half of the season that two of those players or all three of them end up on the bench? It's a very crazy situation to think about, but for Real Madrid, I actually think this is legitimate because Sané can bring them something that I think that they need in their lineup, which, you know, listen, they have some great attackers, but the way Sané breaks down defenders, it does create so many more opportunities for other players, and it does require so much attention from the opposition's defenders that he does pr provide that unique ability to be a game changer without always having to score goals. Uh, you know, we've seen that at times from Kingsley Coman as well, but I think Sané, 
has really been able to thrive in that role. And, and, and quite frankly, I think Sané is a better finisher than Coman as well. So, I mean, to me, in my mind right now, uh, Sané is, is the better player and it, it doesn't shock me that Real Madrid would, would be interested in him. So, any other club that's monitoring the playing time situation at Bayern Munich and what the players are feeling and what they're doing, you're going to have some options. I think, I think there's a big possibility that Coman or Gnabry or Sané, I think the three of them, there's a big possibility that at least two will be disgruntled by the end of the season, because there's just not enough playing time to go around there. There's not, and inevitably there'll be some injuries and that will help out. But Nagelsmann has a headache right now. He has a headache in trying to figure out how to keep these guys happy Well, when they're all healthy. Because it is going to be a problem. And you will have clubs like Real Madrid looking to swoop in and be able to get a deal on a player like Sané. Because while Bayern Munich would probably have no interest in the next, you know, next year of selling off any of those three players in Sané, Coman, or Gnabry, it doesn't mean that those players aren't going to want to force the issue and move on themselves. So what Nagelsmann does and how he handles it is absolutely going to determine whether a club like Real Madrid will have a realistic opportunity to get Leroy Sané. In my mind, this is a legit rumor. I think it's something that that Real Madrid will look very closely at in the summer. And depending on how the next six months or so break out for Sané, it could be a possibility that, that both the player and the club that's pursuing him are on the same page and it could be a move that he he looks to make uh again you don't want to sound the alarm too early but uh it does seem like this is something that could work for both the player and that club the fifth and most important thing that i learned this week after doing a lot of reflection on the first half of the season and then trying to project how the second half was going to play out what I learned is Matthijs de Ligt needs to be a lot better and more consistent. And I am a huge proponent of de Ligt. I was a big fan of the transfer. I wanted Bayern to get him back in, what, 2017? I was on board then. So you can imagine how ex- excited I was when I got the news over the summer. Of course, I, I've told this story. I was in Disney World when that happened. So I, I was trying to like help manage the site through a major transfer story as I'm like waiting in line for freaking Space Mountain or whatever, or the Guardians of the Galaxy ride, which was absolutely tremendous. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I was a person that was a big fan of this and that I wanted to see this work out. And I did think that the Licht would come in and eventually be able to be the starting center back with Luca Hernandez, and it would push Upa Makano into being more of a rotational guy. That did not work out. One, Hernandez was... Banged up a little bit in the first half, but he was really good when he was there. Upamakano was more consistent than Delict, and I think better than Delict. It doesn't mean that Upamakano didn't make big mistakes as well, but Delict had some real. Uh, they used to call them boners back in the day, but I guess that term fell <laughs> fell out of uh, fell out of popularity when boner took on a different meaning. But he did have a couple brain cramps that really, I mean, cost Bayern Munich games and. When I look at the Rook Ronda and I look at PSG waiting there in the next round of the Champions League, I'm looking directly at the Ligt and I'm saying that tie, I think, depends mostly 
on Delict. It's not going to depend on whoever the hell Bayern Munich gets to play goalkeeper. It's not going to be Sven Ulreich or Jan Sommer that loses that tie or wins that tie. It's going to be how Matthijs Delict approaches that tie, how he performs. Can he be that player that so many people thinks he can be? I mean, he has this great potential that we've all heard about and that we've seen, but he hasn't quite lived up to it. And I think that there were some red flags when he came over. The fitness issues and how long it took him to get fit, that was a problem. I think some of his decision-making on the back line was bad. He wasn't nearly as bad positionally as some of the other Bayern Munich defenders. I mean, positionally, he was better than Davies or Upamecano, I thought. But I do think the Ligt struggled at times with doing the right thing. He, he took some risks that he did not need to take, and we all remember some of those. Uh, but I do look at him as as the most important figure moving forward for the Rook Runda because a lot of how Bayern Munich performs and how they do as a club over the next six months is going to depend on how DeLict and Upamecano play together, how they're able to mesh and hold down that back line because you're going to have Davies far way too far upfield most of the time. And he plays with such reckless abandon that it does open them up for counterattacks. So Upamakano and Delict are going to have to be way better than they were in the first half of the season. You know, while Benjamin Pavar doesn't exactly is not exactly a Davies type right back, he will get up into play as well, but he's more disciplined about getting back. Nusar Rally, however, has shown us that he is again like Davies plays with a little more reckless abandon. He's a little more loose with his positioning. And when you have Davies already like that, and if you have Mizrawi like that, Upamakano and Delict are going to have much more focus on them. They're going to have to be way better. And I think that they both have that capability. And I think Upamakano proved in the World Cup that he's ready to take that step and take it on because he already did it for Luca Hernandez there. But Delict, instead of embracing this and trying to raise his level of play, he fell into a rut at the World Cup and ended up on the bench and, and quite frankly, was was happy to be there, which is still driving me mad. So I, I do worry about that. But I think that if Bayern Munich is going to have any type of success here, if they're going to be able to get past PSG, they're absolutely going to need Delict to play a massive role and perform up to this grand potential that we have seen and we have heard about. I need to see it with my own eyes because if I don't see it in this Rook Ronda, I am going to start to have some some worry that this might be his ceiling as a player. Like what we're seeing now might just be who he is. And it's not like he had a glowing report card coming off the transfer at Juventus. I think uh, essentially Brazo signed him based on his potential not on his performance. And I know that sounds weird because, you know, you might say, well, yeah, when he was at Ajax, you signed him on his potential more than his performance, not after Juventus. But I think that's exactly what Byron did. And now with Hernandez out, with Neuer out, you need those two center backs, Upamecano and Delict, to play much larger roles and to play up to the vast potential that they have. And if Delict cannot do that here, I do think Bayern Munich is going to have to look at a couple different things moving forward. Are they going to have to try like hell to convince Benjamin Pavard to stay and play center back? Or are they going to have to go out and look in the market for someone like Yasko Garvidal, who is 
at some point soon going to leave RB Leipzig. But Delict, we need to see it. We need not just to see how he does against PSG, but we need to see that he's going to be consistent in the Bundesliga games, in the Pokal games. We need to see everything from him. And I firmly believe that how he performs is going to determine how Bayern Munich does the rest of the season. On the last note, I will tell you that I did get back into watching some shows. Now, we all heard about my iPad mess, which I still have not found, which is still driving me crazy. And yes, I'm still blaming my wife for that. But I did just suck it up and just start watching it on my smart TV. And you're probably like, yo, idiot, why didn't you just do that in the first place? And I got to be honest, the minute I lay down in bed and I start to try and watch something, which is usually when I watch these shows, if I put it on the TV, I start getting drowsy within five minutes. If I have it on the iPad right in front of me, I can stay awake longer. I don't know why. I'm a freaking weirdo, I guess. But for whatever reason, that's how it works with me. That's how my body reacts to it. Anyway, I did make it through Andor. As you know, I've been a bit of a Star Wars nerd, though I'm not like one of the nerds that reads through like the books and the history and all that. I try and keep it at a high level because I don't want to, I really don't want to dive that far into it because I know if I do, similar to uh, Game of Thrones and a song of ice and fire or whatever, I will be disappointed by what I see on the screen. So I really do try and keep it at a very high level uh, of the Star Wars nerddom, but I am a nerd with Star Wars. So anyway, I watched Andor and of course it's gotten some really good reviews. And I will say that I did enjoy the series. I thought it was very worthwhile in watching it. Some of my takeaways on the show were that the acting was good. The writing was good, which you don't always get with these Disney Plus shows. I mean, the writing can really go off the rails at times. You know, some of my thoughts, The Mandalorian, which I love, I think becomes too formulaic at times. I think that there were some big holes in Boba Fett and Obi-Wan, although I enjoyed them both. There were I could see why some other people did not. And again, I'm letting my fandom go with those. And I'm not trying to dig in too deep to the holes, right? The plot holes and all of that. Um, but with with Andor, I will tell you, the first couple of episodes, I was really wondering why I was watching. I didn't really care too much about this character. Uh, you know, we know him from Rogue One, which in my mind is the best of this modern genre of Star Wars movie, uh, even though it's you know, where it falls in the timeline would, would really be a prequel uh, to the original trilogy. Uh, it, it's to me that still the best of this new generation of movies. And I don't even get me started on uh, the the last, the the whatever trilogy, the, the modern trilogy. I, I have nothing really good to say about that, but uh, Rogue One, I felt like was awesome. And of course, uh, Cassie Nandor, uh, played a key role in that movie. So I, I did, in some ways, I did have some interest, but I didn't know why I should care any more about this character than I already did. And what I will say is I found that over the course of it, after a little bit of a slow start, I didn't really necessarily care about his background, right? I, I cared that that he was this kind of outlier there in the galaxy who, I don't really know what he was doing. He wasn't really an officially a part of the rebellion. He was trying to make money. Um, we don't really know what his initial motivations were other than he didn't like 
the empire and he wanted to make money. But seeing how his character evolved and how he became almost like a mercenary, he went, I shouldn't say became a mercenary, but how he went from being a mercenary to being part of the rebellion by the end of the season. I thought that was interesting. To me, the most interesting part, and it's one of those things that I always think about is how the hell did the rebellion get all of this money to have uniforms, to have all of this high tech uh, warcrafts and and weapons and all this at bases. Where did they get the money to build all this? Um, it was interesting to see that now we know that, you know, some, uh, you, we can, uh, we can assume that there were other people like Mon Mothma who were, uh, taking funds from their families, or, uh, we can assume that there were other larger scale robberies performed by the rebellion to fund their activities. So I thought that was interesting to see that to me, it reminded me of two different things. One, it was the season two of The Wire, how we kind of learned where, who the big real players were in the drug game, how the drugs got into Baltimore, uh, what that whole process was, where they were filtering to, uh, say, the Barksdale gang or some of the other ones. So to me, season two of The Wire is my favorite personal season because I loved seeing the machine and how it operates. So I did totally enjoy that part of Andor and seeing how where the money was coming from, where it was probably going to go, although that part is left up to your imagination. But I think we could all ascertain that the money that they were taking in was going to fund this massive war they were about to have. Um, the other thing that I thought of right away was the uh, Death Star discussion from Clerks uh, between Randall and Dante, where they were talking about the laborers on the Death Star, and all, it, to me, one of the the great scenes from Clerks, especially if you're a Star Wars guy, which we know uh, the writer and director Kevin Smith was, uh, just tremendous use of Star Wars in a movie where you're kind of wondering how you could shoehorn it in there. It was awesome, but it did make me think of that all those little logistical things about something like Star Wars, where where did they get the money, or how did they build the Death Star, and all like tremendous stuff, right? So I did. I did appreciate that. Uh, but overall series, I thought was really well done. Like I said, the acting was great. Storylines were good and I enjoyed it. And to me, that's, I think, where you want to assess things. Was it worth your time to sit down and watch it? And I say, absolutely, it was. Uh, I will watch the second season of it. And like I wrote in the uh, weekend warm-up column that we do that comes out on Fridays, it's not like I'm going to be like eagerly anticipating it. Like I used to be for the game of Thrones or the wire or the Sopranos where I was like pumped up, like crazy, like looking forward to it. Um, even some early seasons of the walking dead before it went completely off the rails. I used to be like that and be that excited. And I won't be that pumped up about it, but I will watch it and I'll be excited to watch it. I just won't be like, you know, a bundle of energy waiting for it to come out. So, uh, if you like Star Wars, I would recommend it. Drop me your thoughts on what you uh, what you think about and or if you watched it. You can do that in the weekend warm-up column because that's where I think I'll, I'll probably list out everything, all of my feelings in more depth than what I just talked about here. So uh, that'll about do it for this episode. I appreciate you guys always chiming in, always listening. Hit me up at the Barrel Blog on Twitter. Uh, you can always also drop comments under the posts. I like to respond to them. Uh, as for the site, check out all of our great writers. I mean, we have so many people writing great stuff right now and our podcasters, I think are doing an awesome work are doing awesome work. So, uh, check them out. You can get the site at Bavarian FB works. 
you can get our Tweetmeister Tom Adams at Tommy Adams 71. You can get I Need No Name at BFWINNN. And get, like I said, get all of our other writers and podcasters on the site. They do just great stuff. Uh, have a great weekend. Enjoy the new year. Have a couple of beers on me, and we will see you next time.